everyone, and welcome to the One Bad Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Irie Carlson. This is the go-to podcast for microhabits. The goal of this podcast is to show you how to create long-lasting change by creating to-dos you can actually achieve. This is the key that can transform your life. Each episode will help pave a strong foundation so you can begin your journey to building a happier and healthier life mentally, physically, and emotionally. It's time to take away the pressure of being perfect and to replace it with the tools that will love and support the incredible person you are and becoming. I wanted to provide a trigger warning. In this episode, there is some discussion of eating disorders in regards to nutrition. Um, In the show notes, it'll show which parts to skip over if that is a very sensitive topic for you. Um, Thank you so much, everyone, and enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone to the One Bad Habit podcast. Today I'm very excited to announce we have one of my good friends, Marissa McKay, joining and she's graduating this upcoming June with a Master's of Science in Nutrition at the National University of Natural Medicine. Marissa is here to share her knowledge on the stages of behavior change, how to assess our readiness, willingness, and ability to change, and how we can relate behavior change to nutrition. And I would say the complicated thing about nutrition that it's inherently emotional, as I feel many of our habits are. So we will dive into that today. Marissa, thank you so much for joining me today. I feel like this has been a dream of mine because you are so knowledgeable about nutrition and wellness. And I've seen you really transform your life. And I think within our friend group, you were the first one who was like, I'm going to start, you know, figuring out my shit. That is so sweet. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here today. I honestly just made that realization. I'm glad that you got to hear my sweet realization while we're together. (laughs) But you will be graduating in June with your master's in nutrition. You and I always talk about like the psychology of things and I'm going to let Marissa take the floor because she's going to discuss the stages of behavior change how we can apply that to nutrition because now she is the expert and I'm excited to learn from you. Thank you so much. I just want to start to reiterate that nutrition itself is inherently really emotional and our relationships with food has deep roots in our childhood, our traumas, and our patterns that we are perpetuating today. There are so many internal and external factors that contribute to how and why we feed ourselves. I think it's my job as a nutritionist to dig deep and find out why people are eating the way that they're eating and how I can add to their lives and how I can contribute to their health and happiness in their progression towards better health. And so for me, assessing where somebody's at, I need to understand where they are in steps of changing their behavior. There are five stages of behavior change. The first being pre-contemplation, which basically means just you're unaware of the problem. Like there are things in the future that we're going to change at this very moment. We're completely unaware of it. Where we are in that stage of change, it's just part of it. And then we move into contemplation, which is where we're aware of the problem and desire behavior change. So I think that there's a lot of habits in our life and a lot of behaviors that we're all looking to change and looking to grow in. And this is a stage where we get to contemplate how ready, willing, and able we are to make those behavior changes because assessing where we are, being honest, and being humble with ourselves is the first, this is the second step of behavior change, but it's the first conscious step of behavior change. Moving on to preparation. This is where we intend to take action in this behavior change. We go out and buy the new running shoes. If if a marathon is our goal, 
we're going to go out and buy some running shoes. And then the next stage being action. We're going we're gonna to go start running. We're going to start yeah. training for that. Practicing that desired behavior is one of the only ways that we can make goals happen. If we practice and become competent in a behavior change, we're going to be so much more confident to continue to perpetuate that positive habit. And I think that can go for negative habits as well, negative behavior changes. And then the last stage of behavior change is actually maintenance. So you wanted to run three miles every single day in this behavior change you wanted to make. Now you're just maintaining that. Is three miles every day realistic for the rest of my life? Probably not. I probably have different life goals and different things that are getting in the way of that. How am I going to maintain the structure of that goal? What was the core root of me trying to achieve that goal? Was I trying to better my relationship with my body? Was I trying to get stronger? How can I continue to perpetuate and achieve that goal, even if that goal is not look the same? I think that we have to continue to go through these stages of behavior change for every new change, every new habit, and kind of get to learn from that cycle. To me, I kind of look at it as like the scientific method and how we make assumptions about ourselves and we make theories about ourselves. This is how we can practice that, how we can have tangibles to make those changes. We are ever evolving. And so our foundation of who we thought we are is just constantly changing. Like who we were in the third grade is very different to who we are now at 27. And probably when we're 30 and 40, have families, our perspective, and everything is going to change. And we just have to keep going back to see, you know, what is working, what is not, and upgrade our behavior or go back to this model that you're talking about. Like, what do I really want? Like, why am I really want running? Mm -hmm. Do I still even want to run now that I'm 40 or 50? Is there like something better that I could do that is still my core goal? Yeah. I think really taking a step back in that contemplation stage and really asking ourselves, am I ready, willing, and able? And why do I want to make this behavior change? Be honest with yourself. Is it something superficial? Is it something internal? Is it something external? And don't judge yourself for making those decisions. People can make behavior changes for a multitude of reasons. And it's up to you and your judgment and your value set to contribute to that cycle however you want to. And it's up to nobody else. I think that there's something pretty powerful when somebody gives you pushback in your life. Because I think it means you're pushing the boundaries of what people think is normal and what things people think is realistic for them. Because change is really hard. And people are really scared by change. People are really afraid to evolve and devolve. So people really like staying where they are. But I think change is one of the only guarantees that we have in this life. And so to be comfortable to ride that wave of change and to understand our habits and behaviors that lead up to why we're perpetuating these cycles that we are unhappy with, we just have to be honest with ourselves to understand where we're coming from. I completely agree. I wanted to ask, what are some of the main things you see that pushes someone to that, that first stage of contemplation that they start considering change? Yeah, really good question. For nutrition specifically, it's illness. People get a health scare. A lot of the time, their doctor will tell them that if they don't change their eating habits or their lifestyle, that they're going to develop type 2 diabetes, which is one of the most real things going on in healthcare right now. It's very common. Extremely it's common. Crazy. It's reversible. We have the power and the tools through nutrition and diet and exercise to not necessarily always reverse it, but make sure that our blood glucose is stable and to really work towards that. And that's not a, a tool that's been given a lot in this world of healthcare medicine. We want a pill. We want instant gratification. That's not what nutrition is. There's a lot of trial and error. We are so biologically individual that that trial and error is really difficult for people to stick with. And so I find that the initial health concern is the reason people initially present and then people represent to nutrition because the goal was unachievable. They weren't ready, willing, or able 
combination of those to make that behavior change but they decide to put themselves in a position to learn more. It's curious that illness is the one thing that propels people to get to that point. The source seems like the main identifier. It seems like it's not taken as seriously if it's like coming from yourself. But there's a ton of social pressure. We have so much pressure from our externals. The media we consume plays a huge role in how we view ourselves and how our parents spoke about themselves and how they spoke about our bodies as children, how our grandparents continue to speak about themselves or have spoke about themselves. There's so many factors that go into this deep root of nutrition, which is a really frustrating part of nutrition. It's really hard to study because everyone's so biologically individual and everybody has a food story to go along with it. We can't just tell everyone to eat broccoli. We know that doesn't work. <laughs> People don't want to stick to that. And that's also not realistic. I'm not going to cure cancer by making people eat broccoli. We're going to help people combat their cancer by feeding them nutrients and antioxidants that help facilitate healing. I think that nutritionists are viewed as somebody who's going to take away something from them, specifically something that brings people so much joy. Food is very emotional. My nutrition point of view is to really add things to people's lives so they don't feel like they can't enjoy the things that they're enjoying in their life and make it feel like they're living a happy and healthy life because we can do both. I think that's one of the parts that feels scary. People feel like they're being pushed into a box of things that they have to do while as the focus should be, no, you have this like whole wide world of food and nutrients that you can add into your life that can be delicious and fun and it's not just a bland ass broccoli yeah. <laughs> like, that sucks I don't I wouldn't look forward to just eating a plate of just steamed broccoli and it's so much more than that oh and you would like dread coming to see me as a nutritionist if I told you that you wouldn't come no no repeat customers oh yeah no I found that nutrition is one of the only aspects of healthcare which is meant to be proactive in our health. It gives us an opportunity to give ourselves insurance for the future by what we feed ourselves today will ensure that we're healed for the future, if nothing else. And I think that's incredibly important because, you know, there's a lot of fear around food and shame around food and that using it as a tool to fully support yourself and support your future support your livelihood like for your loved ones as well as yourself it is a true form of self-care and showing yourself love and when like you're wanting to take a step in that direction it's like you are taking that step to love on yourself as well as your loved ones yeah by feeling yourself and by loving yourself you have the ability to show up for other people more the more you feel confident and loved and cared for, the more you can give to others. I think it's one of the least selfish things we can do is to take care of ourselves. And I think food is one of the most important aspects of that. There's so many ways in which food can be self-care, from growing your own mint to fermenting some cabbage, make some really delicious sauerkraut, great for your gut, growing your own garden to making some cookies with your friends. There's so many avenues in which food can be self-care, and there's so many avenues in which food can be self-destructive as well. Oh, yes, because like you're saying, it's so emotional. It's so emotional. It is a double-edged sword. But when we get the opportunity to practice mindfulness and really be present in our food consumption, we have a really beautiful opportunity to connect to our body, connect to our gut and to our head. There is such a huge role that our gut and brain connection play in our overall happiness. Those little bacteria in our stomach really are important and it's really important to treat them so. We really only get one body. It's really important that we treat it like we understand that. 100%. I want to go back to a question that I have because I know we were talking about adding things into our lives and having that be the focus when looking at nutrition. But what are some of the red flags for people who are wanting to find their own nutritionist 
that they should look out for so they know that who they want to sign up with will be supportive of their journey? Really good question. I think it's something that isn't talked about as much. I think it's really important to find a nutritionist that listens to you. We all have a food relationship story that will give us so much insight into who we are and how we feed ourselves. It correlates to our past, our childhood specifically, our parents, and how we understand the world around us and how we take in all the data of food and feed ourselves. If I can understand that as a nutritionist, I can understand what groceries stores you can go to that'll make it a lot easier, how I can prepare meal plans, personalized nutrition plans for you. So really finding someone who wants to listen to you. There are nutritionists out there that will spend an hour and a half listening with you for an initial visit. One of the most important factors into nutrition that isn't nutrition is stress. Stress and sleep. If our stress and our sleep are off, our digestion is going to be off. So I think it really goes down to find somebody to listen to you about your whole story. It's multifactorial. And then also finding somebody who specializes in whatever disease you may have. I have some family members with Lyme disease, and I know that finding someone who knows how to treat Lyme disease from a holistic point of view is really important for me. Or somebody who knows what MTHFR genetic mutations and how we can best support the methylation cycle. And not all nutritionists know about that. What is the methylation cycle? The methylation cycle is really complex. (laughs) It has to do with our B vitamins and our folate and how we detoxify our liver. It's very complicated. Okay. I'll show you the biochemistry. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Just want to make sure our listeners know. They're like, what? But that makes sense to me. Something popped up in my mind about gut health. I know that's huge right now. Everyone is talking about gut health and probiotics and everything. But I wanted to hear... Your thoughts on it, since you're getting your master's and graduating, what your thoughts are about gut health and also you're talking about stress and sleep and how that may play into those areas of our life as well. I think that the little bacteria in our stomach are the most important people to keep happy. Most important. (laughs) They are mediators between our gut and our brain. And so the foods that we put in automatically fuel our brain and so there are certain foods prebiotics and probiotics that can help feed our gut we want to eat lots of fiber broccoli (laughs) cruciferous vegetables are great sources of fiber jerusalem artichoke celery any sort of vegetable fruits and vegetables just completely full of fiber that's what really feeds our gut bacteria and fermented foods fermented foods are those probiotics that break down our prebiotics And then what is left is postbiotics, and that is excreted in our stool and our urine. And that basically is how the bacteria break down food. And it's really important to remember that hormones are also made in our gut. So while we also have this really interconnected symphony going on in our stomach with just bacteria, that the hormones that are in charge of our happiness, our sadness, are being produced inside of our stomach. And so making sure that we understand how important cholesterol is, is a big factor in two hormones. We are in this really interesting time in nutrition where fat is a really hot topic. People really want to go keto, carnivore, or really want to talk about fats, no margarine. It's very interesting, but we're learning a lot about the importance of fats and the importance of our hormones and making sure that we have adequate levels of healthy fats, avocados, walnuts, seeds, nuts in our diet to help that hormone cycle and help make sure that their brain's getting enough it needs because our brain is mostly made of fat. I didn't know that, honestly. I have never thought about what our brain is made of, but that makes complete sense to me. Also, I know we've talked about this before, that walnuts kind of look like your brain. I love walnuts just because my grandma used to put them in fudge, but I just eat them whole for the like nostalgia of it. But I think it's relevant that you say that fats are good for our brain when some foods, how they look even is representative of different body parts within us. 
That's a really powerful thing and a really good tool to navigate the grocery store with. If you think that a food looks like your organs or like a certain body part, chances are it's probably going to help those body parts. I don't know much about traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine, but there are so many connections to different pit points in our bodies, meridians in our bodies, and the foods that we eat. I think it's a really great practice of mindfulness to look at our plate and see where it's going to help our bodies. I'm um, currently obsessed with lion mane mushrooms, lion's mane mushrooms. Oh, delicious. Also look like the brain. They give me a great neurocognitive boost in the morning with my coffee. I'm a big fan. It really makes you think about like you're talking about mindfulness and being able to be in touch with our bodies and how things make us feel. Mm-hmm. I think that the focus so much in day-to-day life is taste instead of feeling and I hear that a lot like we were just joking about broccoli but it's completely the case of it looking like when you go to a nutritionist or you want to change your diet that you're taking things away and then you're only going to have things left that you don't like to eat that you think taste bad yeah and so I wanted you to talk a little bit about that of what is food mindfulness and how can we focus on how things feel instead of just on taste? That's a really good conversation to bring up because I think mindfulness looks different for so many people. And I think because all of our relationships to food is so individual as well, that we all could practice different mindfulness techniques. I think one of the best ways to practice mindfulness is to practice gratitude for the food that we've been given or the food that's in front of us. Sometimes food can be seen as something we have to do, something that we have to put in our bodies, not something that we get to do. I think it's such a joy that when we do get food, it has the opportunity to nourish us. And taking a moment prior to eating just to practice gratitude for our bodies to be able to digest the food, for the world around us to give us the food, and bring awareness to everything that's in play. Moving on from there, I think we all get triggered by certain things. And sometimes those triggers correlate to um, disordered eating, whether that can be binging and restricting or withholding. I think practicing mindfulness surrounding those behaviors, one of the most important things is to not judge ourselves for feeling the way we're feeling. Because a lot of the time we are perpetuating these behaviors because there's deep-rooted emotional habits and behaviors that we need to recognize before we can change them. If we don't know why we're binge eating, we're going to have a harder time stopping the binging. So when we do get an urge to binge, per se, if we can meet that with acceptance and without judgment and say, I feel like, I feel like binging right now, is this because I'm actually hungry? Am I hungry for food or am I hungry for something else? And then really getting to tease apart the emotion. It's really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable going to our subconscious and trying to understand why we are doing the things we are doing to ourselves. I think there's a mindfulness that is difficult and we want to push it away. But when we do get to that opportunity to say, I don't think I need to binge on this. I think I need to get some fresh air, go journal and get some connection. I think I'm really missing connection. I think I'm taking out emotionally. And then going to seek an alternative to that binge, that's an opportunity to practice new habits. And I think that opportunity to practice new habits only comes from mindfulness or a parallel to mindfulness. We have to be aware of why we're perpetuating these habits if we really want to change. It's so difficult as someone where food for me has always been very triggering just because there's been such a heavy aspect growing up on making sure that like I look good you look good and that's what's so important and I think that is because you know our parents generation the generation before that it was not as much about health and it was just mostly about aesthetic and how you look and making sure that you're not being judged or looked down upon Mm -hmm. and I think very related to women as women for a long time it wasn't about our voice it was about how we look and being taken seriously because 
we look good. Yeah. And trying to break down that generational trauma, mm. I guess that would be called, you know, through throughout time. And now it's really appearing within food and eating habits. And I think our generation is really trying to push the envelope on mm. it's about taking care of yourself and not looking a certain way. I don't want to feel ashamed because I'm eating this or why am I eating so much and digging deep into that. It's probably because, you know, your parents may have some hard triggers and traumas around food because their parents had some hard triggers and traumas around food and it just keeps going back within your family. Yeah, very much so. And historically, these stereotypes about our bodies or the superficial nature of our bodies has really served us. And there are a lot of things about our bodies that do serve us and things that don't serve us. I don't think other people's opinions should serve us that much. You think our opinion of ourselves and how much we get to love ourselves really matters the most. It's really hard not to consume other people's judgment when it's put out there. But I think that's a really another great opportunity to practice mindfulness and really tease apart why they are treating you that way. What's going on in their lives? Is it generational? Is that something that their mothers perpetuated to them? How can we how can we work through this together? Because there's a lot of shame and guilt around our bodies and the foods that we consume. And I don't know if that necessarily needs to be there. Sometimes shame and guilt serves us. But that's part of our mindfulness journeys and seeing where it does and really asking ourselves, does this feeling serve me? Does this food serve me? And if it does, how so? And if not, what would? And how can I move forward from there? That balance of it's okay to feel the emotions that we have in life, like shame and guilt. They do serve a purpose, but to let them rule you and not know how to move through it and learn from it and ask questions is is different and I think that is so incredibly important. It's fine to feel angry or shameful or, or guilt, but how do you move through those emotions? Which kind of comes to the question that I have is, I know that you worked really hard to become a healthier person and figure out what that means to you. Mm -hmm. And as you were going through that journey, I think you started with keto or, or bulletproof. Yeah, Dave Asprey was yeah my idol at one point. <laughs> As you're going through that process, what were like triggers that came up for you in your journey that brought you here now to having a master's in nutrition? I grew up telling people that I was going to be a food critic when I was older. I just love food. I've always loved running around my grandpa's avocado farm and having a summer garden. That was something growing up that was really a huge part of my life. And it wasn't until I went to college and really lost connection to the food around me and my body. And I realized that I didn't actually know how to feed myself. I didn't know how to prepare healthy meals. And it's pretty funny that I, my undergraduate career, I took a nutrition course my freshman year and I got a D in it. And so that was pretty triggering. But That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. It was, um, it made me feel like the thing that I loved the most was the thing that I understood the least. And so that kind of triggered me to like push forward and try and understand this thing, try and understand my body. Because I see all these people around me having great connections with their bodies and um, wanting to exercise and wanting to be social, wanting to be happy. I didn't have that for myself, and I really realized that I need to get back to my roots. I really need to get back, put my feet in the dirt, eat some avocados, and love myself. And part of loving myself is mindfulness, and the other part of my loving myself is giving myself grace and not judging myself for the mistakes I have made and the mistakes I'm going to make, because I think part of making behavior changes and part of making life changes is failing. I am not going to get it right every single time. And I would be 
pretty disappointed in myself if I did, because that would be pretty easy. And I think that the things that are hardest in life are the things that are the most eye-opening to our gifts and our abilities and where we can learn to grow. 100%. I think we have to fail. Failure leads to success. Everyone who's successful, they failed a million times and we are just going to fail again, but that failing propels us forward to learn. Yeah. It's like we get to know what actually works and, and what really doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> and it correlates so perfectly to nutrition and making dietary changes because I could want to add in lion's mane mushrooms to your diet and you could hate the taste of them. You could hate it. It could be a quote unquote failure for us as a part, a team, a relationship. But it's within those relationships that I learned the most about you and that I learned that I could maybe add some different herbs, some turmeric, like Ignatia into your diet. Maybe you like that more. It's all about failure. And it's all about get, picking yourself back up after that failure and knowing that that failure, you really learned something. It goes back to life is an experiment. No. <laughs> We're just in this constant experiment of trying to figure out what works as, as we're evolving like that five-day habit method is looking forward to that next five days and deciding how you want to create change if it's healthy eating experimenting with that yeah. if you're my nutritionist and I want to eat healthier and I'm like I just want to pick one healthy thing to do for five days the next upcoming Monday through Friday and you tell me to eat lion's mane and I hate it we didn't fail. We just know, okay, next week when we pick the next healthy thing to try to move towards that goal, we maybe aren't going to eat that or maybe have something different to make that a more enjoyable experience because of that, the compounding interest. We'll keep doing it and keep being propelled forward if we enjoy it and if we choose it and want it. I want to ask you this question, but I feel like you're going to say it's mindfulness because I know that it is. But as you started with keto and Dave Asbury, is that who's saying Dave Asbury? Asbury. Yeah. And now you're in this really beautiful flow state with your body and with health and food. What are some things that you do to maintain that flow state? I know you have a garden, so I don't know if that is... Yeah. One of the things, but I'm I'm curious to know about that for some people who may be farther along in their health journey. Mm. Yeah, flow state for me looks like surrounding myself with people, activities, and things that make me happy. And learning, acknowledging things that don't make me happy. And moving through this life with the idea that I have goals and I have dreams and I have a lot of them. But really, it's the journey and the process in which I achieve those goals. It's not me walking across that stage at graduation where I complete that goal. It's the hard work I do every single day. It's the little small things, the little habits that I have in my life that continue to propel me forward into the, to this flow state. And so I have some non-negotiables for myself. That's, that's a part of my health journey. I... Besides the brushing my teeth every day, I think that's a non-negotiable. I try and exercise, but that doesn't necessarily have to be every single day. And that doesn't have to be a scheduled exercise. I think something that I've learned so much during COVID is that being flexible is really essential. And it's been raining here recently, so hiking trails have been pretty muddy recently. And hiking is my favorite activity. It really helps get me out of my head, out of my house. It is a practice of mindfulness and meditation and exercise and really grounding for me. But it, when I can't hike, I like to find activities inside that make me feel the same way, make me feel like I'm doing something for myself with myself. Because if it was just to be skinny or just to be pretty, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't feel good. So hygiene, obviously, taking care of that, that's really important. I can always tell when I'm really sad, when my room's the dirtiest, or when I can't do my laundry. When those little things start going away. It's, it's a trigger or a cue to me that I need to reevaluate where my priorities are at that moment. Because sometimes my priorities are 
elsewhere with like so many people always wanting stuff from us and always needing also partnership I think it's really important for us to be aware of where we need to take care of ourselves first I'm not a mom yet I'm not in a relationship and so my only job is to be a partner to myself first and second and third I know that not everyone gets that opportunity so making sure that you are your priority even if that looks like going to bed 30 minutes early to spend 15 extra minutes in the bathroom taking a nice hot shower there are so many things for people that can help maintain a flow state and coming up with your non-negotiables and figuring out what makes you the happiest in order to show up for others i think that's incredibly important for those who are single, I think if you're coming into relationship, you need those non-negotiables. You need to know how to take care of you because I think not not having that system yet and then coming into relationship, there's so many things that happen where you can deny yourself or make yourself second mm-hmm. and you start to lose sight of who you are and creating the time to take care of you because you didn't establish that before. and. I think for those who are in relationships, if your partner loves you, they will be happy that you are creating those boundaries and non-negotiables and having that time for yourself because it has you show up better, like you just said. You can show up fuller and happier and it may inspire your partner to do the same for themselves because they will have more time alone if you're creating time for yourself alone to check in. I agree. Those non-negotiables and those self-care habits change with how we change. It's hugely important to give ourselves grace if we can't show up for ourselves one day. Then we make ourselves a priority the next day and being okay with that. You know, thinking about just even this past year, mm-hmm. like I know the pandemic was really hard, but I don't know why 2021 just felt kind of odd because you're getting back into being normal and that rush of seeing people again trying to find that balance making sure you take care of you a lot of things being up in the air whether like you're going back to office or you're going back to school in person or wanting to move or travel Mm. it's been weird and I think through all of that it can be triggering to not feel like you have a strong foundation Mm -hmm. and then also trying to figure out health and wellness for yourself or maybe you had a system and then that gets disrupted what is something you can say about that like if things come up in life that start to disrupt your system of how you're taking care of yourself what's a good way to check in to signal yourself to go back to those mindfulness Mm. habits to continue to do that self-care through nutrition the thing that comes up most for me is learning how to say no I think that is, it's very hard for me. It's very hard for a lot of people to say no. But when we find ourselves slipping away from ourselves, our health and happiness, generally it's because we're consuming ourselves with other people's time and other people's energy. And learning how to say no to events and priorities of other people, I think that's creating boundaries around ourselves and our happiness is a really great way to make sure that we are constantly focusing on ourselves constantly have the opportunity to practice mindfulness and the problem i see with barrier or boundary setting is like picture the boundary being an electric fence i'm not going to know where that electric fence is until i get shocked a few times it's going to be painful and it's going to hurt but once i know where that fence is i'm really happy to stay in there very comfortable in there it's like, shit, I don't want to get shocked again. I'm going to say no. <laughs> sometimes it feels like, I don't know if you've ever met these sort of people, but sometimes people like getting shocked. Sometimes people like really pushing the boundaries. And it's also part of our job in a relationship, friendship, emotional relationship to say, I don't like getting shocked with you. I don't want to be in this fence with you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think that's so hard. 
on two fronts. One, like if you have a friend and you love them so much and you just keep seeing them run into the fire and get shocked, it's incredibly difficult because all you can do so they don't feel your judgment because you're not judging them. You're just like, I just love you and I want to keep you in this safe bubble of can I just feed you these things and experiment with you and like make sure you don't get into these situations where you feel bad. And I think also speaking of getting shocked together in a relationship, Mm -hmm. like in a relationship, your nutrition is so dependent on one another because you eat together. Mm -hmm. And that is something very difficult to navigate. And, you know, I'm trying to navigate within my own relationship, which I think Sean and I have been so much better at this year than last year, which I'm really thankful that he's been on board and way more supportive, but it's hard. Yeah. I see my grandma get mad at my grandpa. She says, I'm fat because he eats dick. And it's like, well, we we have control over, you know, what we eat, but how can we be supportive partners to our partners in their nutrition journey? Mm -hmm. And also have them support us and ours. Because like you're saying, we're all different bodies. So maybe what feels good for me to eat may actually not feel good for them, even if it is healthy. And that's also a hard thing to figure out. Where is the middle ground in that? This is really powerful. And I think that's something that's really also just as powerful as having those conversations with your partner. Saying, how does this make you feel? Is this something that's fueling you and having the uncomfortable conversation about bowel movements and your ability to digest foods? It's really, really personal and it's really scary. But having that awareness, I learned this really crazy thing in my microbiome class where once you start cohabitating with somebody, your microbiome becomes one and very similar. Like the bacteria in your guys' guts are similar based on the food you eat and the habitat that you live in. And so I just find it crazy how couples have like very similar gut bacteria and how things that fuel one person may or may not fuel the other. But the correlation between the two are just crazy. Maybe eventually it will. (laughs) The longer you are together, it makes it comforting because I'm like, oh, then maybe Sean and I can start really eating similar meals because he'll have all my same (laughs) weight and sensitivities. I'm like, I don't know if I can eat that. I think I'll actually shit my pants. So (laughs) maybe no, because I don't want to have a problem this evening. That doesn't make me feel sexy. Feel sexy. And I want to feel sexy, especially feel sexy with you. I like feeling good in my body and showing up to you in that. So I don't know. But yeah, bowel movements, it's funny. A lot of people are are scared to talk about poo, and I just have never been that way. (laughs) I kind of love it. Like, I think maybe it runs in my family. My mom might not like me outing her about this, but my mom would always tell me about her poo. She'd be like, I had a great bowel movement today. It was so solid and whole. And one time she sent me a photo. (laughs) No, it's wild. And I just think, oh, like, that's great. That means what you were eating was really great for you. Or she would tell me, hey, I had really hard rock poos today. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe she's not even eating enough fiber, not drinking enough water. Exactly. And it's always been a topic of conversation. And I think it's because my grandma, her mom, would just never talk about that stuff. And so my mom just went the complete opposite direction Yeah, and would talk about it. But it's really important. So all of you who are scared to talk about your poop, do it. Yeah. It's very Give freeing. It, it like It's a new door in a relationship. Yeah. Go as far as to ask your girlfriends about their menstrual cycles as well. Ooh, yeah. That is hugely important. And the thing... I promise you, if you've Googled it, all your friends have Googled it too. And it's going to be a lot easier if we just talk about it so much about ourselves and learn so much about the cycle that we all go through monthly. And the fact that a lot of us are really disconnected from our cycles and really disconnected from our own bodies, it's hard to overcome, but there's a lot of people on that journey of rediscovery. I forget what accountant is, but it's interesting, like the difference things within the menstrual cycle because there's like the luteal luteal phase luteal phase menstrual phase there's two other phases luteal and follicular yes yeah and 
how our hormone levels are throughout those phases, like things we can do and foods we can eat to mm-hmm. balance ourselves throughout those phases. I just started diving into that and with, you know, nutrition. I think one of the things I heard was sweet potatoes and your certain points of your cycle may be helpful. Yeah. Sweet potatoes are phytoestrogens. Exactly. Going back to gut health, how it starts in the gut and helps regulate. That's what creates our hormones and Mm -hmm. regulate our hormones. So eating certain foods could literally help us feel better when we're going through major changes in our body each month as women. There's um, something called seed cycling. And as women, we can balance our hormones during our follicular and luteal phases using different seeds during our different times of the month. So our follicular phase is menstruation to ovulation. And we can help balance our hormones by taking two tablespoons of pumpkins and flax seeds daily. I find it easiest to blend them up in smoothies or throw it in like a granola or something. And then during our luteal phase, which is ovulation to menstruation, two tablespoons daily of sunflower seeds and sesame seeds help to balance our hormones out. It's pretty crazy. It's crazy how little additives into our life can make such a big difference into the long-term and short-term goals that we have for ourselves. And I think even wanting to move in the direction of being healthier, that could be, if like it, it sounds so overwhelming for someone, mm-hmm. that first step, maybe I want to just help regulate my cycle. Yeah. My hormone cycle starting out. That sounds exciting to me. That sounds intriguing. I want to add that and like make a smoothie. And maybe that is their first thing that they do instead of, you know, looking at all their meals. And that's how they start getting excited about health and nutrition. And I think little things like that Mm -hmm. is what just ripples and compounds into great change. And that's the powerful part of nutrition is that it's really just the accumulation of little changes, little habits to recognize what works and what doesn't. And it's crazy looking back at ourselves and our nutritional journeys and seeing where our clients and our patients are and also where we are. There's so much new information coming out constantly. That's a really exciting part of nutrition for me is being able to evolve with the science. And also evolve with my body. It's going to be exciting just to see your journey post-grad. Because it's like you get to then figure out what you want to do in your practice. And all the new material that will come out. We're forever learning. Which I'm wondering, what kind of resources would you recommend? Like if someone wanted to go and do some research for themselves. Any books or like accounts or people you look up to that may be helpful for other people who are beginning their journey or are in their journey? I definitely have so many resources and stuff. I really like a couple content creators, but I also think it's, first of all, it's really important to look at consumption as a whole. I think taking a really mindful approach to our social media accounts and seeing who we're serving and who we're following and why it's serving us if it is serving us and unfollowing people because I think if we're on a mindfulness and self-growth journey we want to stack all the odds in our favor we want to follow the people that inspire us and light us up and so a couple people that inspire me and light me up are Max Lugavere he's got a book called Genius Foods and he has a podcast called the Genius Life Podcast his book the Genius Life and Genius Foods are a really great introduction to foods that promote brain health, gut health, and longevity, which I think is something that most of us are trying to achieve. And I think it's a great pillar to overall health. He really breaks down nutrients and what they do for our body in a layman's term, so it's very uncomplicated. If you want to dive deep into some more complicated nutrition and self-care, I really like Ben Greenfield. He is a wealth of information. His book, Boundless, is a great resource for me in my life and how he takes so many different tools that we have in this healthcare world, including technology and the power of fitness and the power of cold therapy and all these little biohacking things mixed with nutrition and physiology. His books and his podcasts are amazing. And I think. It's really 
special to follow your nutritionist online. If your nutritionist has an Instagram, I would follow it. I think that says a lot about your nutritionist and you can gain a lot more insight into your own self-care journey based on how your practitioner is practicing their own life and if they're willing to open up themselves to that. Other books that I really like are Anything by Michael Pollan. He has some really great books. How to Change Your Mind is a really awesome one. It's about mushrooms and psychedelics and the revolution historically, which I just find fascinating. Trophics themselves. His book Caffeine is all about caffeine. Is really insightful and a really great historian. As far as cookbooks go, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat by Samin Nasrat. I believe I said that incorrectly. She is awesome. She's got a whole series on Netflix as well called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat that I recommend watching. As well on Netflix is Cooked by Michael Pollan, a great series. And then if you are looking to be inspired to push your boundaries and grow, I really recommend watching 14 Peaks on Netflix. It is an incredible movie about a Nepali man and his team of mountaineers subbing the 14 peaks that are 8,000 feet above sea level. And they did it in less than six months, I believe. It is an incredible movie about perseverance and endurance, and it's been really making me think when I've been hiking recently that if NIMS can climb K2 or Mount Everest in a blizzard, I can hike up this mountain in 80-degree weather. It gives total perspective. <laughs> like, well, this seems like it'll be fine and I'll be fine. Yeah. It challenges me to take risks and push my boundaries. because. The capabilities of a human are really incredible. He, his mission and his project that he was working on is called Project Possible. He's inspiring to push people past cultural barriers and boundaries and see people as they are as really incredible, strong humans. And I think that's something that we can all take away, man, woman, whatever race we are. Well, that's amazing. And I, I know some of that I've seen or read, but a lot of that I haven't. So I'm excited to dive in. Maybe that'll be my, you know, 2022 thing. Yeah. Because I'm on that journey with myself. We are forever. Yeah. But the more we know, you know, yeah. knowledge is power. Knowledge really is power. And the more that we can use that power to support ourselves and our journeys, the more confident we're going to feel going through that journey. I think the most important resource that we have is ourselves and our judgment and how we perceive situations. Leaning into trusting ourselves is one of the greatest gifts we can give ourselves in our confidence and our competence in this world. If we don't trust ourselves, how are we going to put our trust in anybody else? I think getting to the root of that and being our own best resource and finding habits to do that. I think that that looks very different for other people. And everybody has their own way of doing that. For me, it's keeping commitments to myself and showing up for myself is how I trust myself. And those commitments could be something like doing my laundry for the day. Or it can be hiking. And it can be eating a certain meal. Or it can be dinner with a friend, family or friends. I think those promises and that trust looks very different. I think how we build that trust sets a really strong foundation for the rest of our lives. I agree. I think so many times we don't listen to our inner voice mm -hmm. and us not showing up for our own personal commitments or being a person of our word is where we start building or building that non-trust, mm -hmm. figuring out how to listen to that voice. And I think sometimes that creates a big breakthrough when we talk about magnetism mm -hmm. or the law of attraction is when you really listen to what you want and that voice and showing up for things, you start to attract more into your life because you are showing up more authentically and more true to you because you're doing what you want. You're showing up how you want as the person that you know that you are and can be and like that trust muscle just starts to build up so much and it's such a big part of you know food mindfulness too like you've been talking about is 
trust that we know what we need. Mm-hmm. And it's okay if we question it, but then we need to listen to that feeling. Our bodies are so powerful. We have the capability to heal ourselves from so many different ailments and conditions. Our body, those cravings that our body is telling us and talking to us with, sometimes play a really big role into the actual nutrition that our body needs. Sometimes that sugar craving is because we need sugar. It's because our body's low on glucose. Sometimes we are craving salty foods because we need some sodium in our diet in order to detoxify our livers and our bodies. We can really easily get in a cycle of distrust with ourselves. You've built trust within yourself. Oh my gosh, me. I think that really started kind of what you're talking about, what what pushes you to create change. Mm. What pushed me to create change was going through a breakup. You know, people, I feel like when a lot of people go through breakups, they're like, I need to cut my hair. I need to move. <laughs> like there's someone, they just want to create a big change. And for me, it was a lot with food and health because it's so emotional in general. And that is just how I cope. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to learn ways to eat food that I liked because all I was doing before was just ordering food in. I would spend like immense amounts of money. It was absolutely insane mm-hmm. on ordering in food or going out to get food. And I gained like 20 pounds. And I thought I need to fix this because I'm really upset that nothing fits me and I just don't feel like myself and I just don't feel motivated. And that's what kind of pushed me to that point of looking into what can I eat that makes me feel good instead of feeling so sad. I didn't feel in control of my emotions. So I thought maybe with food, if I can find food that makes me feel better that that could help me overall feel better which at that point I didn't know anything about gut biome so hearing that that really helps regulate emotions when I look back that intuitiveness was probably because I felt so out of balance I was like I need to figure this out and that's what helped propel me forward and I created a food journal yeah And I was listening to this podcast at the time called Primal Potential. Yeah. And it discussed your heck FM, which was when I know it sounds uh, I'll just I'll say what it means. So it's like when you're eating certain food, it's not trying to regulate yourself, but first looking at how is the food you're eating currently making you feel? Mm -hmm. And so it would say to rate from one to 10, like these different categories, H for hunger, E for energy. C for, oh my God, I can't remember what C was for. Cravings. Mm. And then focus was F. And then I can't remember M, to be quite honest. But it was like looking at those different categories of if you eat this, do you feel satisfied? Mm. Or are you still ridiculously hungry? Maybe your meal that you had wasn't balanced enough or didn't have all the nutrients that you need. What is your energy? Like, are you super lethargic? And then same with cravings. Like later in the day, are you still craving certain things? Why? Or can you focus? Like when you're at work, can you actually show up? And I started really looking at that because I never even thought to look at that before. Food always seemed really restrictive. Mm -hmm. And to have this way of looking at food and trying to change my diet was where it wasn't trying to change my diet right away, but just looking at how is this making me feel? Am I actually feeding myself correctly? Mm. And how I'm creating these meals. And it really helped rework some of my trauma around eating, which is how I learned mindfulness around food, but I didn't know it was called mindfulness at the time. I was just like, okay, this makes me feel really tired. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't eat that. Like I eat lunch and then I feel like I don't know how to work the rest of the day. Yeah. Or I get really bloated. Mm. I hated that. That was one of my biggest things. I hated being bloated. How do I figure out not to be bloated? Because I'd be so consistently uncomfortable. Mm. And I also swollen, which I notice now when I eat certain foods or go out to restaurants, my face gets swollen. And before, I don't think I ever noticed that. But that was one of the ways I started practicing food mindfulness and is something that I still do now, like especially with the tired or energetic after eating. Mm -hmm. 
That is the biggest indicator for me, whether that meal really suited me or not. And also if I still want food after I eat my meal. Those are the two things like beyond like the focus and cravings and stuff is just, do I still feel excited to do my day or not? I think it's something really important that you spoke about is recognizing the feelings before and after we eat. Is the food that I'm consuming easing a trigger? Or is it making me feel better? Or is it making me feel worse? I think that's a really powerful way to practice mindfulness. Yeah, because it's like, even if you do want ice cream, that's okay. But how are we feeling after we eat that? And I think too, I don't really know how you would do this, but sometimes like we don't even realize that we're eating to cope and trying to be aware or create that awareness of I'm eating more than normal. Why? I don't know how to create that awareness. For meals, I have to hit a low or feel like I have a health issue because I've gained so much weight to be like, huh, why am I eating more? That's something really important to look at is why are you eating more or less than normal? Well, there's so many factors why one would be eating more or less. Coping, like you said, one of them. Physical body changes. People exercising more really should be eating more. There's a lot of physiological need for food and energy and nutrients. And stress. Stress is one of those things that if it's perpetuating in your life at all, it is going to be very hard to understand what is causing the triggers if stress is perpetuating. You're not going to know if the food you just ate and the stressor are unrelated or related. I think that's very hard to tease out. Something that I think is really foundational prior to nutrition is sleep and stress. If you're not sleeping more than six hours a night consistently, you're going to show up poorly. You're going to have low energy. Your circadian rhythm is going to be off. You're not going to have enough energy to, feel, to get yourself through the day, and it's going to cause you to perform poorly. Same thing goes with stress. If you're stressed out, your body is constantly in a sympathetic state of being. You're constantly in fight or flight. Our bodies digest food significantly better when we're in parasympathetic stage, when our body's rested and relaxed. Our body can have stronger motility to move food through our digestive system. We're going to have more normal and frequent bowel movements, and the absorption of our foods is going to be significantly higher. So dealing with stress and sleep is a priority almost higher to feeding yourself appropriately. So if you can't do that, then those foods aren't going to work together as well as they can. But really, it's a conjunction of those things. If you're stressed and eating loads of fast food, it's going to add to it. It's not going to help it. I mean, that makes sense. If you're not getting enough sleep, it's going to be so much harder to move through those triggers with food mm -hmm. and to make a different decision to include mindfulness into your practice. And especially with stress. If we're on fight or flight, we're just trying to survive. So the importance of being mindful, I think, extremely diminishes. I just need to eat and like move on. Our body can't put any energy towards thinking about mindfulness, thinking about the food. It's just got to go in. We got to keep moving. Got to keep ourselves alive. It's a really hard place to be. And I know that we all go there. It's a constant in this life that we live. We're constantly being bombarded by technology, blue light, our circadian rhythm is being disrupted constantly. The foods that we're eating, the environment is giving off so many pollutants. It's really important that we're aware of those things and also aware of how we can mitigate those things in our lives and how that looks different from other people's lives. Because we're not all the same. We don't have, all have the same access. We all live in very different places. I know we are almost to time, but I wanted to ask you one more question before we wrap up. Okay. So, Marissa, we've established how you're maintaining your flow state. Mm -hmm. We've talked about nutrition. This has been an incredibly informative episode. There's so many things that I didn't know that I learned today. But I wanted to know what is a goal that you are working towards right now? that you're maybe excited about or figuring out your system for? I've got a lot of goals. So the first goal that's tangible, that's in progress, I'm taking, if we're talking about the stages of change, I'm taking action right now. I am almost done with my nutrition program. 
I'm very excited to graduate and I'm very excited to share my credentials with people and share the knowledge that I've been so blessed with. And then I'm, I really love hiking and I really want to climb Mount Rainier in Washington. That's a physical mountain that I really want to climb. I climbed Mount Bierstadt last summer and that was the most, one of the most moving experiences of my whole life. And one of the moments I was most proud of myself. I would tell myself in my undergraduate career in Colorado that my friends would see me on top of that mountain over my dead body. And so getting to the top of the mountain with one of my best friends reminded me that I am actively pursuing goals that I don't even know that I'm pursuing. So it made me have a lot of faith in that pre-contemplation stage and that I have such high goals and such high standards for myself that I'm working towards it without even realizing it. And a goal that I've set out for myself, I've just put out some applications to PhD programs. I would really love to teach others about nutrition and working towards that goal of creating a generation of college students that are really aware and feel empowered by food in their bodies. I know that as a freshman who failed nutrition, that would have been really powerful for me to find and meet somebody who encourage me to love my body over the tangible way. And I think I can make it really fun and exciting for students. So getting into a program and moving wherever the world has out for me. My recent awareness that I'm trying to bring to myself is that I am magnetic and that all that is meant for me will come to find me. So I'm really trying to lean into that with this and not stress myself out too much about the goals that I have. I love that. And that was so beautiful. You're going to do and you have already done so many incredible things. And whoever gets to learn from you is going to be so lucky. Thank you. I mean, we've been through so much in our journey and to see where you're going and where you are, I feel lucky. So that'll be incredible for you to be able to share that knowledge. And I'm excited for you to climb that mountain because you will. Thank you. <laughs> I feel so lucky to have such a great support system. I literally couldn't do it without the support of my friends and family. It really inspires me to keep going. We need our people. Yeah, we really do. We really need our people. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today. I hope this conversation was as inspirational and educational as it was for me. And Marissa, tell the people where to find you. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok as MRM Gratifood, M-R-M-G-R-I-T-F-O-O-D, and Marissa McKay on everything else. Yeah, I really appreciate you having this conversation with me. I found a lot of value in it, and I hope everyone else does as well. Well, thank you so much, and... Bye, everyone. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we will talk soon. Before we head out, if you leave a review, you'll receive a free guide of the One Bad Habit Find Your Habit Formula 5-Day Focus. It will walk you through how to break down your goals into bite-sized pieces, how to find your habit formula or formula for success, and how we can easily show up each week and take aligned action. This is the method that changed my life, and I'm excited to share it for free for a limited time only. So make sure to leave a review, screenshot it, and email it to me at onebadhabitatatime at gmail.com. Again, that's onebadhabitatatime at gmail.com. Thank you so much. See you next time.